0: So the topic for tonight is form and emptiness. Um, And to begin, uh, I want to thank uh, two of my teachers, Gil Fronstall and Guy Armstrong, who um, kind of are inspiring this talk tonight. Um, And I brought Guy's book, if you're interested in the topic of emptiness and you wanna learn more, uh, this is a fabulous book and it makes the teachings of emptiness really accessible. So tonight I'll be Fitting maybe, I don't know, 2,500 years of Buddhism into half an hour. Uh, So if that doesn't work so well, you can can read the book. Um, So uh, I want to find out um, who here is familiar with the Heart Sutra. So let's just see a show of hands. Okay, so not so many, a few people. So the Heart Sutra is um, probably the most famous uh, Mahayana Buddhist sutra. Um, It's the most commonly chanted sutra here at SF Zen Center, and I would say um, the most commonly chanted sutra at uh, Mahayana uh, Buddhist temples around the world. So it's, it's um, a really pivotal text. And if we were to zoom in on the thesis of the Heart Sutra, it says, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Um, and it might be easy to gloss over a short little statement like this, um, but it's actually a really critical and foundational Zen teaching. So that's why we're looking at it tonight. And specifically, I'm going to cover kind of three main questions. Um, so um, what is emptiness? Uh, secondly, why do we care? Uh, and then lastly, how can we realize it? So that, that's what we'll be going through together. And just to establish some relevance from the beginning, there's a, a reason that this sutra is... Um, the most famous sutra Um, and it's because this teaching on form and and emptiness um, uh, to have a deep understanding of that teaching uh, facilitates our freedom and by that I mean we can become free from suffering in our life if we have deep insight into this teaching. So before getting into emptiness I want to say a little bit about form. So form you all are very familiar with, whether you know it or not. Um, Most of us live our lives uh, through the perspective of form. So form refers to conventional reality, it's our relative, worldly experience. Um, It's where we have all our ideas, it includes people, places, things, everything you can imagine exists in this realm of form. Uh, This is our daily life. So this includes uh, you and me, and rainbows and alligators and conferences and Alaska and Donald Trump—all of this is in the realm of form, right? Our likes, our dislikes, the teaching of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha—this is all form. Um, so this is the world that can be named and thought about. Um, emptiness, on the other hand, is much more difficult to see, and um, maybe even more difficult to talk about. Uh, so. Tonight, as I go over these teachings, these are not introductory Zen teachings. So if, if it doesn't land for you or if it's a little confusing, don't worry about it. The more you're exposed to teachings on emptiness, um, the more it starts to sink in. Um, so rather than listen with, for um, an intellectual understanding tonight, um, just sense into what resonates for you. So. Um, so, what is emptiness? That first question, what's emptiness? So, emptiness, or shunyata, is the word in Sanskrit. Um, it refers to how all things lack a solid, fixed identity, a solid, unchanging, independent identity. Uh, or we could say things lack a fixed identity. So, this, uh, uh, this applies to our, ourselves, it applies to others and to all things. Um, So we have names and labels for things, but there's actually nothing fixed beneath those labels. Things are always changing, right? Um, So put another way, and maybe even more simply, um, when we hear emptiness, we can think, empty of what? And we can answer that question by saying, empty of a separate self. So that could just be kind of easy shorthand when you hear the term emptiness. Empty of what? Oh, empty of a separate self. So, uh, from, from the view of form, what we're typically doing is we're carving up the universe into distinct concepts like you and me and redwood trees and war and socks and you know all of these things. Um, but from the view of emptiness, there's no separation between these things. So what I'd like to do now is actually zoom in on uh, the emptiness of self. Um, so what's referred, this is what's referred to as not-self teachings, or anatta teachings. Uh, so our standard view of ourselves um, is that I'm a specific individual that's in, in, in control of my experience, and this self persists through time. So there's kind of a continuous me, a continuous me moving through time and space, right? Um, however, if we investigate the nature of self, we see that there isn't a solid permanent me. Um, There's not some uh, fixed essence uh, that I can call I, me, or mine. Uh, So what we think of as self is actually a lot more amorphous than than it appears. Um, So let's explore this a little bit by by looking closer at what we typically identify with. So we typically identify with our body, with our our thoughts and our emotions. Let's start by looking at our emotions. So, um, when we're in the midst of a strong feeling, it feels so real, right? It's so strong, it's so intense. Um, this is me, this is who I am. But of course, we all, we've all seen the way that emotions pass, right? They're just like clouds in the sky. So, you know, to, to um, put a stake in an emotion, and say this is who I am, you know, I'm always sad or I'm always depressed, It's kind of like putting a stake in a cloud and claiming it as property. It it doesn't work, right? Um, uh, So, of course, we're not our emotions. So then, uh, what about the physical form? Are we our bodies? So, uh, let's engage in a little macabre thought experiment to, to check this out. So, um, if uh, your legs were removed, would you still be you? Um, yeah. How about your arms? Uh, If your eyes didn't see anymore, if you didn't have your eyes. Yeah, you're still probably in there, right? Um, Your ears, yeah. Uh, What about our heart? Well, you know, people who have a heart transplant, they're still them. So this gets to the tricky one. What about the brain? You know, most of us have a sense of that like, the real me is hanging out back here behind the eyes somewhere, kind of in the control tower, uh, managing experience. So I have a quote for you. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain. And that it simply does not exist. Time magazine, 2002. Hmm. Well then, if we're not our brains, could we possibly be our thoughts? Well, if you've spent, if you spent any time meditating, uh, you probably have a good sense of how hopelessly neurotic and obsessive the thinking mind is. So I sure hope we're not our thoughts. And of course, we aren't. If if, uh, emotions are like clouds in an empty sky, our thoughts are like little birds passing through. Uh, And really, thoughts, they're just uh, words and pictures in our head. Like They're weightless little holograms. Like there's nothing there. Um, And yet, uh, they kind of rule our world, right? But in essence, there's really, there's nothing fixed in the realm of thought. So we actually can't say um, that the essence of me is in the thinking mind. So if you're not your emotions, if you're not your body, if you're not your thoughts, what are you? And where are you? Where is the you in you. Where can it be found? Maybe it can't be. And that's what these teachings are pointing to. They're pointing to the fact that there's no fixed you at the core. So from the perspective of form, uh, it's conventionally useful to call this physical mass May Eliot. Like, that's a helpful thing to be able to do. Um, However, the reflection we just did can begin to reveal the empty nature of this being and all of these beings, right? Um, So another inroad to understanding emptiness um, is seeing the impermanence of things. Um, And this is because when we can see the impermanence of things, it begins to erode our sense of stability. So we can do that using the analogy of a river. So, from the perspective of form, streams and and rivers all have their unique identities, right? Their unique nature. Um, You know, so some are wide, some are slow uh, and shallow, Uh, some are cloudy, some are fast and clear. Um, Different rivers have different geographic locations, um, and they can be named in useful ways. You know, there's the Mississippi River, there's the Rogue River, there's the Sacramento River. Like This is useful and relevant. However, from the view of emptiness, from that viewpoint, uh, we can begin to see their insubstantiality. So each of these rivers have banks which have some, some semblance of continuity that they're, in that they're in a specific location. Um, however, the water itself is Always changing, right? As the saying goes, you can never step in the same river twice. Like, there's never the same water passing through. So there's nothing fixed there. There's nothing fixed in the river. So if you take a bucket to the river and you scoop out some water and then you bring it to a friend and you're like, hey, the Mississippi River, they'll probably think you're a little crazy. Because, uh, of course, that's not the river, you know, that's just like this tiny little snapshot of wa- the water passing through. We can't actually grasp on to any specific aspect of the river and say that's the Mississippi. And we humans are the same. So, you know, there's the May River and the Joe Biden River and the Dalai Lama River and all of these rivers here. So conventionally, from the viewpoint of form, that these are useful and important designations. There is something here, called Mae Elliot, with memories and plans and fears and stories and preferences, Um, but it's not the whole picture. Suzuki Roshi, the the founder of this temple, um, he said, of course the bird we see and hear exists. It exists, but what I mean by that may not be exactly what you mean he's pointing to this you know, empty nature of the bird, that which we don't, we don't typically see. Uh, so, from this perspective of emptiness, uh, even though we think there's a permanent fixed me in here, we're always changing. You know, like the river, there's nothing we can point to that's fixed. You know, this is one of the reasons that, in our meditation, we looked at the changing nature of the sensations in the body. You know, um, we're we're not so much a solid, stable identity as a process. Like, our self is a process more than a noun. So the water flowing past, the water in a a river, it's much like the mind stream, you know, this this constant flow of uh, thoughts and emotions and physical sensations passing by, kind of like a waterfall of experience. And we can begin to see the empty nature of things, we can begin to see that flow in our meditation, by staying present to the change that's happening. And then as soon as the mind says, this is me or mind, when we fixate on certain data points, that's a little bit like taking a bucket to the Mississippi and saying, ah, here's the Mississippi, right? We, we fixate on a data point, we pull out that information, and then we build a little internal um, conceptual world around it. But really, that's just, you know, one scoop from the river. So this, for example, you know, if I say, you know, I'm not very smart, or uh, my roommate's lazy, or my, um, my siblings are stingy, you know, this is, these are all just buckets from the river, right, from this flowing change of experience. So you might consider, uh, what data points do you choose to focus on? What do you pull out of the flow of experience? What do you fixate on and then extrapolate on in your own mind? So just to say a little bit more about conceptualization, because this is kind of an important aspect of what, what often obscures emptiness, our tendency to conceptualize, um, is that um, you know, when we, we, uh, we're dipping our bucket, when we're conceptualizing, you know, we're going from present-centered experience into perceptions and thoughts and narratives and storylines. So we go from being in the flow of the river, seeing the, nat- the changing nature of it, to narrating a story about the Mississippi, right? to narrating a story about ourselves. So we're really, we're carving up reality into me and you and here and there uh, through our language and ideas. So, um, in a sense, we're creating the world with our concepts. Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, um, the Austrian philosopher, said, the self is only a shadow cast by grammar. The self is only a shadow cast by grammar. So, concepts are useful, but they're a limited picture. Okay, so this this, um, begins to unfold what emptiness might be pointing to. Um, Empty of what? Empty of a separate self. Empty of of a fixed nature. So, let's get into our second uh, question. Why do we care? Uh, So, the only reason that we explore emptiness teachings is because it has to do with freedom. Um, Freedom from suffering. Um, So how does emptiness help with freedom from suffering? So to start, we need to know what causes suffering. And this is like the Buddha's first teaching. He gets enlightened, and then this is the teaching he gives. In the Dhammachaka Pavatna, he's like, four noble truths. The second noble truth is what I want to zoom in on. And that's the source of suffering is craving. So the flip side of craving, of course, is aversion. It's wanting and not wanting, two sides of the same coin, right? Pretty incredible. You know, the myriad forms of suffering in our life all boil down to wanting and not wanting. Really simple, right? Um, So the reason conceptualization is of note is because much of our conceptualization, or we could say much of our thinking, is a result of craving and aversion. It's a result of, not, of wanting and not wanting, this function that uh, produces suffering. So, um, what happens is the mind fixates on something it wants or it doesn't want, and then it extrapolates, creates papancha. Papancha is the word for this uh, sort of unwholesome mental proliferation. So, for example, let's say you sprain your ankle. So you could be with this from the perspective of emptiness, you know, just noticing the flow of sensations, the pressure, the heat, the tingling, um, the sharp sensations. Um, However, what typically happens is we fixate and extrapolate, right? So there's a bunch of papancha and we go, oh, I wish this wasn't happening. So there's the the not wanting, suffering arises. Uh, God, I really wanted to go hiking this weekend. Ah, wanting something I now can't have. More suffering. Um, you know, why does this always happen to me? Oh, my, my partner loves hiking and now we can't go hiking together, and uh, what if he dumps me because we can't go hiking together? You know, et cetera, et cetera. The, the papancha blooms from here. So when we see the way that our excessive thinking reifies our craving and clinging, we really understand why it's important to let go of thoughts. Now, and this is why we hear, you know, why, why teachers say, you know, in zazen, let go of thinking, because thinking is often a reflection of the wanting and not wanting that produces suffering. And it's kind of incredible, because what happens is we, as we sit and watch our thoughts, and we do this for, for a while, if we practice for a while, thoughts become thinner, they become wispier, and they become less powerful. Um, and it's so freeing not needing to believe our thoughts. Like that possibility is just amazing. Um, like to consider that with this practice, like the most powerful, uh, uh, self-defining story that you have could dissolve. That, that possibility is pretty amazing. So, this is why uh, some teachers say that uh, rather than try to solve your problems, this practice can dissolve your problems. So when we're not conceptualizing, there's no self, Uh, there's no other, there's no objects, and so therefore there's nothing to cling or reject, there's nothing to crave or reject. So when we see emptiness of self, we realize there's nothing to have, or get, or become. When we can see the emptiness of objects, of the things around us, including other people, um, uh, we see that there's nothing fixed there, it's insubstantial. And if there's nothing fixed, there's nothing to cling to, right? So it undercuts that which creates craving. If there's nothing to grasp, we can't cling. So if you can really have deep insight into emptiness, you can really see how there's no self to get anything and there's no objects to grasp, and we're free. So, uh, third question, how do we come to realize emptiness? Um, Well, good news, you're already doing it. Um, uh, When we sit meditation, we're engaging in a radical emptying of our thoughts and our ideas. Um, and it's this that allows us to understand and see emptiness in our life and in our world. Um, so uh, every time we get involved with thinking about something, uh, it's, you know, it's like going to the river, getting our bucket of water. Um, so the, the thoughts are creating the fixed identities and experiences that we, um, that we often build our life around. Um, uh, What meditation is pointing us to is letting go of that papancha, letting go of the mental proliferation. And this can happen in two ways. So one, we're letting go of thoughts that have already arisen. And then secondly, as sense data comes in, we hear things, we see things, we feel things with the body, we're not adding anything extra. So we're keeping it simple. So the Buddha talks about this in the Bahiya Sutta, which is um, from the the early Buddhist canon, the Theravada. Um, And Bahiya goes to the Buddha and he's like, I don't have a lot of time, can I have the teaching in brief? Like, can you summarize everything you teach and just like, give me a snapshot? And the Buddha's like, no. (laughs) And then Bahiya asks again and the Buddha finally says, okay, here's my teaching in brief. And he says, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seeing, there's only the seen. In the hearing, there's only the heard. In the sensed, there's only the sensed. And in the cognized, there's only the cognized. Then for you, Bahia, there will be no you there. When there's no you there, you are neither here nor there nor in between. This, just this is the end of suffering. So this simple practice of just being with sense experience as it arises is liberative, because we're not adding anything extra. We're not engaging in the act of craving or clinging. Because typically, if something pleasant arises, we grab hold and want more. If something unpleasant arises, we push it away and try to get less, right? We try to have less. So, really simple, letting go of of thoughts and not adding anything extra. Um, So, we're emptying the mind. That's how we can think of it. To realize emptiness, we empty the mind. Okay, so we've covered what's emptiness, why is it relevant, how do we realize it? So, let's go back to the Heart Sutra and this thesis of form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Um, because I haven't really unpacked how these two things are the same, right? How how can we see that uh, this statement uh, works, right? Um, So to understand this, we're we're looking at um, Nagarjuna, who is a second-century philosopher and monk, um, his teaching on the two truths. So form and emptiness, these are the two truths in Buddhism. Uh, So uh, to understand this, we can use the analogy of a hand. So, you know, you can see my hand right now, and you might see it as a hand, or you might see it as a collection of five fingers. Both are true. One hand has five fingers, and there's no hand beyond the five fingers, you know. There are two aspects of one reality. So within this collection of five fingers, each finger can have a different identity. So, you know, there's like May Elliott and Katy Perry and earthquakes and ice cream and resentment and like the whole world of experience are the fingers, uh, but we can also just see a hand. The hand. When we see the hand, that's seeing emptiness. Now this is the non-specification of things. Um, some people say, uh, point to oneness as an expression of emptiness, it's, uh, which can, it's, can actually be a fullness. Um, or we can focus on the individuality of things. And now here's the thing. If we want to be free, we need to respect both, both form and emptiness. We need to honor form, we need to honor the conventional, and the reason I say this is because it's pretty common that students start hearing about emptiness and they're like, oh everything is empty, I can do whatever I want, Um, but the thing is uh, we can't cause harm. Um, uh, Often when people do whatever they want, (laughs) they cause a lot of harm in the world. Uh, And so this teaching is is pointing to that, knowing that form is emptiness and emptiness is form, we can't pretend that form doesn't exist. so, in, in classical Zen teachings, if a Zen student were to go to a Zen master and say, basically, well, if everything's empty, uh, can I do whatever I want? Um, or, you know, if it was a Zen koan, he'd probably say, the self is but a dream. Um, so, if a, if a student went to a Zen master and said, the self is but a dream, the Zen master would probably take a stick and hit that student with it and say, well, is that self a dream? Um, you know, directly pointing to the fact that this individual being feels and senses, like that's, that's, that's real. You know, we don't negate individual experience because it's empty. So we're we're not denying the single, uh, singular, wonderful creation that is you. Um, We're not denying our experience in any way, Um, but by seeing it's empty, We don't identify with it anymore. Anab Thupten, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher, says, um, I love myself. It's so dear. It shows up and tells me what clothes to put on in the morning and what to eat. It's so helpful. The persona becomes like a garment that we wear because it's useful, just like we wear clothes, but we don't identify with our clothes. We need a persona just how we need clothes. We don't need to take our persona too seriously. It's just like a hat that we put on. So emptiness, uh, it doesn't lead to a sense of negligence or futility either. It's, it's deeply uh, connected, and from that place, it's also deeply respectful. Um, and it's deeply ethical. I mentioned harm. So, um, so in this tradition, we don't harm other beings. right? We don't steal, or lie, or kill, um, because we deeply respect form. Uh, we deeply respect individual experience. Uh, Padma Sambhava, the Tibetan, te- Tibetan teacher from 8th, 9th century, uh, said, um, uh, though my view is as vast as space, my attention to detail is as fine as barley flour. So, Though my view is vast like emptiness, my attention to detail and form is very intricate. And if we negate or ignore the relative, that might be spiritual bypassing. So for those of you who haven't heard this term, it was coined by uh, John Wellwood, who is a psychotherapist and a Buddhist practitioner. Um, and he defines it by saying, spiritual bypassing is the tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. So um, uh, spiritual bypassing is uh, repressing or ignoring our experience, right? Um, or a- acting unethically on the ground, grounds that everything's empty. So, for example, if I had a a supervisor who was verbally abusive and I said, oh, well, I'm not going to say anything or do anything because everything's empty anyways, that would be spiritual bypassing, right? Or if I felt really angry and I was like, oh, I'm not going to feel this angry, this is not a spiritual feeling, that would be spiritual bypassing. So we need to hold both form and emptiness at once. So I think I will, um, I think I'll close with a poem. And as I read it, uh, listen for form and emptiness in the poem, and there's a leaf in the poem. See if you can tell what side is emptiness and which side is form. And it's called, I was reading a poem, and it's by uh, David Rushman, who, uh, if anybody knows Jiryu, the abbot of Green Gulch, the sister temple to this one, this is by Jiryu's brother, so Dave's also, a. Uh, practitioner. Um, oh, and in the poem it mentions uh, Ryokan, who was a Soto monk and poet in the 1700s. Okay, this is how the poem goes. I was reading a poem by Ryokan about a leaf, and how it showed the front and the back as it fell. And I wanted to call someone, my wife, my brother, to tell about the poem. And I thought that maybe my telling about the poem was the front of the leaf, and my silence about the poem was the back. And then I thought that maybe my telling and my silence together were honestly just the front of the leaf, and that the back was something else, something I didn't understand. And then I thought that maybe everything I understood and everything I didn't were both actually just the front of the leaf so that the totality of my life was actually just the front of the leaf, just the one side, which would make the other side my death. Unless my life and my death together were really still only the front of the leaf. I had left the branch. I was falling. I was loose now in the bright autumn air. Let's sit for a few minutes together.